Chapter Six of Maria or the Wrongs of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Active as love was in the heart of Maria, the story she had just heard made her thoughts take a wider range. The opening buds of hope closed, as if they had put forth too early, and the happiest day of her life was overcast by the most melancholy reflections. Thinking of Jemima's peculiar fate and her own, she was led to consider the oppressed state of women, and to lament that she had given birth to a daughter. Sleep fled from her eyelids while she dwelt on the wretchedness of unprotected infancy, till sympathy with Jemima changed to agony, when it seemed probable that her own babe might even now be in the very state she so forcibly described. Maria thought, and thought again. Jemima's humanity had rather been benumbed than killed, by the keen frost she had to brave at her entrance into life, an appeal then to her feelings on this tender point surely would not be fruitless, and Maria began to anticipate the delight it would afford her to gain intelligence of her child. This project was now the only subject of reflection, and she watched impatiently for the dawn of day with that determinate purpose which generally ensures success. At the usual hour Jemima brought her breakfast and a tender note from Darnford. She ran her eye hastily over it, and her heart calmly hoarded up the rapture a fresh assurance of affection, affection such as she wished to inspire gave her, without diverting her mind a moment from its design. While Jemima waited to take away the breakfast, Maria alluded to the reflections that had haunted her during the night to the exclusion of sleep. She spoke with energy of Jemima's unmerited sufferings, and of the fate of a number of deserted females, placed within the sweep of a whirlwind, from which it was next to impossible to escape. Perceiving the effect her conversation produced on the countenance of her guard, she grasped the arm of Jemima with that irresistible warmth which defies repulse, exclaiming, With your heart, and such dreadful experience, can you lend your aid to deprive my babe of a mother's tenderness, a mother's care? In the name of God, assist me to snatch her from her destruction. Let me but give her an education— let me but prepare her body and mind to encounter the ills which await her sex, and I will teach her to consider you as her second mother, and herself as the prop of your age. Yes, Jemima, look at me. Observe me closely and read my very soul. You merit a better fate. She held out her hand with a firm gesture of assurance. And I will procure it for you as a testimony of my esteem, as well as of my gratitude." Jemima had not power to resist this persuasive torrent, and owning that the house in which she was confined was situated on the bank of the Thames, only a few miles from London, and not on the sea-coast, as Darnford has supposed, she promised to invent some excuse for her absence, and go herself to trace the situation, and inquire concerning the health of this abandoned daughter. Her manner implied an attention to do something more, but she seemed unwilling to impart her design, and Maria, glad to have obtained the main point, thought it best to leave her to the workings of her own mind, convinced that she had the power of interesting her still more in favour of herself and child by a simple recital of facts. In the evening, 
Jemima informed the impatient mother that on the morrow she should hasten to town before the family hour of rising, and received all the information necessary as a clue to her search. The good night Maria uttered was peculiarly solemn and affectionate. Glad expectation sparkled in her eye, and for the first time since her detention she pronounced the name of her child with pleasurable fondness, and, with all the garrulity of a nurse, described her first smile when she recognised her mother. Recollecting herself, a still kinder adieu with a God bless you that seemed to include a maternal benediction dismissed Jemima. The dreary solitude of the ensuing day, lengthened by impatiently dwelling on the same idea, was intolerably wearisome. She listened for the sound of a particular clock, which some directions of the wind allowed her to hear distinctly. She marked the shadow gaining on the wall, and twilight thickening into darkness. Her breath seemed oppressed while she anxiously counted nine. The last sound was a stroke of despair on her heart, for she expected every moment, without seeing Jemima, to have her light extinguished by the savage female who supplied her place. She was even obliged to prepare for bed, restless as she was, not to disoblige her new attendant. She had been cautioned not to speak too freely to her, but the caution was needless. Her countenance would still more emphatically have made her shrink back. Such was the ferocity of manner, conspicuous in every word and gesture of this hag, that Maria was afraid to inquire why Jemima, who had faithfully promised to see her before her door was shut for the night, came not. And when the key was turned in the lock, to consign her to a night of suspense, she felt a degree of anguish which the circumstances scarcely justified. Continually on the watch, the shutting of a door, or the sound of a footstep, made her startle and tremble with apprehension, something like what she felt when, at her entrance, dragged along the gallery, she began to doubt whether she was not surrounded by demons. Fatigued by an endless rotation of thought and wild alarms, she looked like a spectre when Jemima entered in the morning, especially as her eyes darted out of her head to read in Jemima's countenance, almost as pallid, the intelligence she dared not trust her tongue to demand. Jemima put down the tea-things, and appeared very busy in arranging the table. Maria took up a cup with trembling hand, then forcibly recovering her fortitude, and restraining the convulsive movement which agitated the muscles of her mouth, she said, "'Spare yourself the pain of preparing me for your information, I adjure you. My child is dead.' Jemima solemnly answered yes, with a look expressive of compassion and angry emotions. Leave me, added Maria, making a fresh effort to govern her feelings, and hiding her face in her handkerchief, to conceal her anguish. It is enough. I know that my babe is no more. I will hear the particulars when I am. Calmer she could not utter, and Jemima, without importuning her by idle attempts to console her, left the room. Plunged into the deepest melancholy, she would not admit Darnford's visits, and such is the force of early associations, even on strong minds, that for a while she indulged the superstitious notion that she was justly punished by the death of her child for having for an instant ceased to regret her loss. Two or three letters from Darnford, 
full of soothing manly tenderness, only added poignancy to these accusing emotions. Yet the passionate style in which he expressed what he termed the first and fondest wish of his heart, that his affection might make her some amends for the cruelty and injustice she had endured, inspired a sentiment of gratitude to heaven, and her eyes filled with delicious tears, when at the conclusion of his letter, wishing to supply the place of her unworthy relations, whose want of principle he execrated, he assured her, calling her his dearest girl, that it should henceforth be the business of his life to make her happy. He begged in a note, sent the following morning, to be permitted to see her, when his presence would be no intrusion on her grief, and so earnestly entreated to be allowed, according to promise, to beguile the tedious moments of absence, by dwelling on the events of her past life, that she sent him the memoirs which had been written for her daughter, promising Jemima the perusal as soon as he returned them. End of chapter 6